Well, thank you so very much. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Galatians chapter 3, uh, Galatians chapter 3, and I will read a couple of verses starting in verse 7 and then explain a little bit of how we're going to go about doing what we're doing here. Uh, the title of this message is Keeping the Grand End in View for the Blessing of the Nations, the Life and Ministry of William Carey. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Four years after having sent William Carey to India, the Baptist Missionary Society sent a man named John Fountain to aid Carey to check on him and send a report back of what he found. So here is a part of his report dated November 1796. Carey labors in the translation of the scriptures and has nearly finished the New Testament, being somewhere around the middle of Revelation. He keeps the grand end in view, which first induced him to leave his country and those Christian friends he still dearly loves. Carey keeps the grand end in view. William Carey, a modern missionary pioneer who endured much hardship, persevered in faithfulness until the age of 73. His life and ministry would change the modern world. Historians have argued that his missions tracked and inquiry deserves a place alongside Martin Luther's 95 Theses as one of the most important documents in Protestant church history. How did he manage faithfulness in the Christian life in challenging times and at a time when few had crossed cultures to reach the unreached? As Fountain observed, or as he saw when he showed up there, from his earliest days of missionary activity until the end of his life, Carey kept the grand end in view. So what is this grand end? Well, while it's right to say that the entire Bible points to and reveals the grand end, I believe there's one verse that's most helpful and sums it up well, and Galatians 3.8 will serve as our base text. And after we spend a few minutes examining that, trying to establish what I mean and what I think Carrie meant by the grand end, we will then look at Carrie's life and ministry in biographical form, really as a display of that text, a, a 3D picture of what that text is lived out as a means to help us understand it and apply it for our lives today. I was telling the faculty in our first faculty meeting who know me well, uh, but I say it again to many of you who don't know me as well, um, I actually have emotions. Um, um, they don't always come out in the way that they do for many of you. They're just, they sort of come to about right here and then go back down. So it takes students in my classes about three or four weeks to realize that I've been joking the whole semester. They just didn't pick, pick up on my jokes. Um, or for things to come out. So in 30 minutes, you may not sense my level of excitement, so I'm just going to go ahead and convey to you that I'm quite excited, even if you can't uh, uh, pick up on that here at the start. And one of the reasons why I'm excited is the opportunity to, invent, to introduce many of you to this brother of ours, William Carey, for the first time, is actually an immense privilege and responsibility. Carey was not perfect. We don't believe in sainthood the way our Roman Catholic friends do. Um, but there's so much about his life and ministry that's worth 
taking in that this is just a brief introduction that hopefully will stir you to go and learn more. So first, Galatians 3.8, briefly, as our base text, and then we'll look at the life and ministry of, of William Carey. In Galatians 3.8, Paul says, I'll read again, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Here Paul explains that God has always had the salvation of the nations in mind. From the beginning, he conveyed to Abraham his plan. And in what is often called the centerpiece of the first five books of the Bible, God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. At the age of 75, Abraham obeyed God, and he and his wife left their country. And after a period of travel and time, God met with Abraham. He took him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, and if you are, a if you are able to number them. And then God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, it says, believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. After Abraham believed in Genesis 17, God made a covenant with him, promising him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And so now Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8 that this event, this looking up at the stars, Abraham believing it credited to him as righteousness, God saying you'll be the, the father of many nations, this event was the gospel being preached to Abraham. So we might think, well, how is that possible? The name of Jesus Christ was not mentioned the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, none of that's unpacked for Abraham. So how can Paul say that this was the gospel being preached? Well, in short, the gospel preached to Abraham was God's promise that to him, that through him and his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Or simply that Gentiles, non-Israelites, would be justified by faith. Paul explains this a little bit further in Romans 4 that the purpose of all this was to make Abraham the father of all who believe, and that the words said to Abraham, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is all Romans 4. Again, Paul explains in Romans 1 that the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The great early church preacher John Chrysostom put it this way in a sermon on Galatians 3.8. Chrysostom says, Paul is showing that faith is older than the law. The one who gave the law, he says, in effect, was the one who decreed before the law was given that the Gentiles should be justified. And Paul says, preach the gospel in Galatians 3.8 so that you may understand that even Abraham rejoiced at this kind of righteousness and greatly desired its advent. The gospel has always had the doctrine of justification at its center, reconciliation of sinful humanity to a holy God and the removal of God's just condemnation is the core of gospel truth. Yet to be gospel-centered is to recognize that the gospel was intended for Abraham in the Old Testament past as a forward-looking, faith-requiring message revealed with the miraculous advent, perfect law-abiding life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are also to receive now as a backward-looking, faith-requiring message, 
and we're to take that message to the ends of the earth. The gospel preached to Abraham, though not revealed in full, was nevertheless received with justifying faith and pointed to a future fulfillment among all peoples, including us, peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Or as one 20th century poet put it, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. God taking Abraham out, looking at the stars, says, so shall your offspring breathe metaphorically stars there for all of God's people, including you and me, including peoples at the ends of the earth who have not yet heard. And more than just us, the directive we must remember is that the gospel has always contained an intrinsic element of blessing the nations. The gospel is for you and me, but it's for a lot more people than just you and me. Because of this, we can say that Muslims and unbelieving Jews are not the true successors to Abraham. We say that kindly, we, we say that lovingly, but we say it nonetheless. They're not the true successors by genealogy. Martin Luther said, descent by blood does not create the children of Abraham in God's eyes. Abraham was the father of faith and he was justified before God, not because he had physical descendants, but because he believed. Therefore, anyone who wants to be a child of Abraham, the believer must also believe. Salvation only comes through the one, namely Jesus, in whom faith is placed and through whom we are justified. And the good news is, is that Christ is stronger than genealogy or geography. It matters not to whom you were born or to where you were born. The free offer of the gospel is still applicable to every human being on the planet. This offer is available to everyone. Muslims in North India, Jews in Israel, persecuted Uyghurs in China, Americans on both coasts, left and right, Somali refugees right here in Kansas City, your neighbors, everyone. But that offer of the gospel will not be forever. We know from Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow, whether they like it or not, and confess Jesus is Lord. So there's a time stamp in which the free offer is available to all peoples. So until that day when Christ's return comes, we, like Carrie, are to keep this directive we're to keep this grand end in view, the good news of the gospel for the blessings of all nations. We're to keep it front and center and not get distracted or displaced by present troubles or even very other good things. So my hope in this message is to make one thing clear. The directive to keep the grand end of global evangelism in view is not another garment or tool or lens the believers wears or uses but rather is the natural, healthy outworking of what it means to have a gospel-centered focus. We don't just think about missions when we're in Dr. Joe's class. We think about it all the time. This is the grand end. God means to give us the gospel to bless every tribe, tongue, people, and nation of the earth. Kerry understood this, and it's what motivated his life. So the life and ministry, then, of William Carey, built upon this brief foundation of Galatians 3.8, we now look at the life of Carrie as a display of that text, if you will. Um, to understand Carrie, we need to understand a little bit of what was happening in the historical and theological context of English life in the 18th century. Unless that sentence just wave over you like a wave of boredom or a dark cloud coming in to put you to sleep, let me tell you that I find uh, English history in the 16th, 17th, in 18th century, some of the most exciting times in which one could live. And if time travel ever becomes possible, that is where I will go. And so it's my job to help you to see it is an, actually an exciting time and one worth studying and knowing. 
But what's happening in the 18th century in England, especially at this time? Well, the passing of something called the Act of Toleration in 1689 proved to be quite significant. For the first time, the monarchy is saying that religious freedom is now available for all believing people in the country. It wasn't that way before. You had to be a member of the Church of England. If you were a Christian and did not attend your local parish church, you would be rounded up and put in jail. And so for Baptists, especially in England in the 17th century, a lot of time was spent in jail. A lot of time was spent hiding in meeting houses, in the hills, in the byways. A lot of time was spent uh, uh, finding ways to get around those rules. But after 1689, Baptists could now worship legally. They could build church buildings for the first time. They could recruit new members. They could function as fully accepted members of the religious society. So you would think that that freedom given in 1689 would make the 18th century this time of great expansion, just you know, full growth of Baptist churches and other churches in, around the country. Actually, the reverse ended up happening. The result over the ensuing decades was an overall decline. Part of this was due to fatigue, simply of decades of struggling to survive. But the decline generally came due to the influence of a movement we call the Enlightenment, or sometimes called the Age of Reason. And what was happening simultaneously with religious freedom was a growing consensus among the educated that human understanding was the key to religion. We're smarter than, than our forefathers were. We understand things better than, than they do. Therefore, that, that helps us to really not take the things they took by faith, to examine them in different ways, and to begin to deconstruct. So for English Baptists specifically, this led to doctrinal decay in the form of some Baptists pursuing logic, their ability to reason as humans over scripture, and it led to a sense of unraveling doctrinally, to the point that many English Baptists began to even deny the Trinity. You think, how, how can that happen? Well, anytime you, you leave the boundaries that are clearly set in scripture and begin to follow after your own human logic or reason, that's going to lead you to a place to what might be logical, but may be inconsistent with scripture. And if you start doing that with the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not too far before you get to a place of unraveling, even though you think you might be smarter than the text or smarter than is actually something revealed to us. Other Baptists did the same error. They followed logic over the boundaries of scriptures, and instead of unraveling, they actually wound themselves up to a point of paralysis. And the reason they were doing this is they were so fixated on trying to understand God's sovereignty that it led them to embrace a theological position that we historically called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism, often misunderstood and is something that's even thrown out there today as a label, was a real-life movement in the 17th century in England. Basically, it's taking a Reformation understanding of how God saves to illogical extremes. The same error, moving beyond the boundaries of the text of Scripture, following logic and allowing it to wind, you, wind yourself up into a place of paralysis. These hyper-Calvinists believe that since God knows who will be saved from time began, those who are elected are already justified in God's eyes, and therefore there's no need for them to experience conversion on earth. And again, you can understand if you believe God is sovereign in salvation, how one might abandon the text of scripture, embrace human logic, and get to that point. They also thought that since salvation is already determined in eternity past, how one lived ultimately on earth didn't matter. I'm, I'm saved, so nothing can re revert that. I'll just live however I want. So you had moral decline happening as well. There was, therefore, by logic, a growing reluctance to preach the gospel 
since they concluded the Holy Spirit is working without the aid of human agencies giving calls to the unbeliever. So you can see how this illogical conclusions are freezing them. They're no longer preaching the gospel. They're no longer living the way Christ would command them to live. They're no longer believing even right things about God himself. So while logical to some degree, all of these views clearly contradicted the commands and examples given in Scripture. Scripture commands things and gives examples of things that are are more held in tension than even our logical minds can work out. By design, God is not us. He is God. We have finite minds. He's infinite. And there is necessarily a point of tension. To give you one historical footnote, in the year 1715, in England, there were 220 particular Baptist congregations. By 1750, that number had dwindled down to 146. This among a denomination of people that were just given religious freedom to expand and to grow and to no longer have to fight for their survival, the influence of the age of reason and enlightenment, moving logical thinking to illogical extremes, caused them to decline. There's a point in C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew, which if you're keeping track, that should be read sixth and not first. Um, For those of you who read the Chronicles of Narnia, in that book, there's a point at which two children enter a world that's suspended in time. They enter a grand hall to find ornately robed people of royalty sitting lifeless, like waxworks. In an adjacent room, the children are drawn to a small golden bell with a hammer placed perfectly to entice any child to pick up that hammer and to strike the bell. And so after some debate, the children ring the bell, and Lewis says, it gave out a note, a sweet note, such as you might have expected and not very loud. But instead of dying away again, it went on, and as it went on, it grew louder. As the story continues, the ringing awakens all of those people who are frozen, and many adventures begin to ensue. Not all of them are good. But this idea of someone ringing a bell and bringing the lifeless back to life is a really a fitting picture for what happens among English Baptist churches in the 18th century. Frozen in place in paralysis by the influence of the age of reason, English Baptists needed someone to ring a bell to awaken them from their doctrinal slumber, to bring them back to the scriptures, to bring them back to the balance that the text provides. And the two who rang that bell were two pastors from the middle of England really unknown parts of the country, not from London, uh, from the middle of England. And those two pastors were Andrew Fuller and William Carey. Now, Fuller is someone who's worthy of another chapel sermon. Uh, So we'll have to save the examination of his life for another time. But just know that if you haven't heard of Fuller, Charles Spurgeon called him the greatest theologian of his century. Fuller had a background in a hyper-Calvinist church. And so how was he awakened? to seeing the errors of those doctrines. Well, by God's design and God's providence, he received copies from the new world of some works by a rising theologian and philosopher named Jonathan Edwards. And Fuller reading Edwards and then comparing what he was reading of Edwards to the scriptures allowed him to reorient his doctrine of salvation, to to awaken. The bell was rung for him, and he came to life. Timothy George explains that this move allowed Fuller to see that evangelism and Calvinism could be recognized, reconciled. There was no contradiction between the universal obligation of all to hear the gospel, to believe in Christ, and the sovereign decision of God to save those whom he has chosen. Fuller's being brought back to a place of balance. 
Fuller would write a book called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation in 1785, and that began the thawing of theology among English Baptists that allowed his friend, William Carey, to organize and mobilize Baptist churches to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Fuller's in, 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 a role here cannot be underestimated. But our figure is William Carey. Carey lived 1761 to 1834. And so we started this message with a quote from the time at which he's already in India. And someone's coming to observe him and says he's keeping the Grand Inn in view. Well, the remaining of our time, we'll now look at his life and how he got to that point and then what happened after that and how we can learn particularly from his life and ministry now that we have this biblical foundation, historical context, theological context, now carry. So if you haven't had a church history class or haven't had one in a while, this was my favorite time of the semester and when I took church history for the first time when a professor had sort of finished giving us a number of list of dates and all these other kind of things to memorize, and it was clear that he was just about to sit back and talk for a while. And I could just sort of take in a story, if you will, of a person's life. And so if you've been following with me so far, this is the point where you can just sit and listen and marvel at the life and ministry of William Carey. 1761, Carey was born in a small village to a devout Anglican family. So whereas Fuller was raised in Baptist church context, uh, Carey was not, and that will become important. And though as Carey, like many of his peers in his day, attended church, he experienced no life transformation. This was just a rote, you know, part of society. By the time he reached his teens, he was apprenticed as a shoemaker and was paired with a co-worker by the name of John War. War was not an Anglican, he was a Congregationalist, but he was a Christian, born again, and he began sharing the gospel with Carey, and Carey resisted. But it's one of those evangelism encounters where Carey could not escape. They were there, today, there day after day making shoes with one another, and War is just laying on him the gospel day after day. War continued to invite Carey to church, gave him books to read, and soon Carey came under conviction. Not yet repentance, but just conviction. Carey's response to that is the response of many of us and many people throughout church history was to try to fix oneself. He tried to reform his life and his behavior under his own power for up to two years after hearing the gospel from John War. But eventually he relented. And he would later say, it's at that point that I chose to depend only on a crucified savior for pardon and salvation, not my own works. He continued to attend church with War, now attending a Congregationalist church, not an Anglican church, and study the scriptures for himself. And through the study of scriptures and the attending of a non-Anglican church, he decided that he needed to leave the Church of England formally. And part of this was a motivation to forsake his own infant baptism. See, he was reading the scriptures and coming to a conclusion that infant baptism is not biblical. We need to follow the, the Lord Jesus himself, the understanding of the meaning of the word baptize, the implicit order in the Great Commission, and to be baptized as a believer. And to figure out the right way to go about that, he sought counsel from a leading Baptist pastor, John Ryland Sr., and eventually was baptized in John Ryland's church. During these years, he married his wife, Dorothy, and soon was encouraged to become a preacher. And as he preached, he read. Those two things are often good to keep in mind if one desires to preach to continue to read. And through the Baptist churches, and though the Baptist churches were steeped in hyper-Calvinism, Carey was an outsider. He wasn't trained by them. And so he was shaped more like books by Robert Hall Sr., Help to Zion's Travelers, 
which was really a doctrinal primer molded on the theology of Jonathan Edwards. Carrie would say later about that book, I do not remember ever, ever to have to read any book with such raptures as I did that. If it was poison, as some then said, it was so sweet to me that I drank it greedily, greedily to the bottom of the cup. And I rejoice to say that those doctrines are the choice of my heart to this day. Carrie was also enamored by the accounts of the voyages of Captain James Cook, which opened his eyes to the larger world. He, Cook was a, a traveling explorer and would write back to England of all the nations and the places he was finding, helping English people to see opportunities for trade and commerce, as well as the growing English empire. Carrie would realize that these foreign lands that Cook was writing about had no written language. Therefore, they had no scriptures. They had no churches. They had no ministers. Simply, they had no one to share the good news with them. Carrie would set out to gather then as much information as he could about the nations of the world that had never heard the gospel. Carrie soon began to pastor, and he became friends with Andrew Fuller and a few other pastor uh, friends in the area. This is all in the middle of England. And shared Fuller's conviction about the need for a reawakening of biblical doctrine in Baptist churches. These influences combined to solidify a theology that held the sovereignty of God in balance with the responsibility of man to believe and a growing zeal to see the saving message of the Lord Jesus taken to the ends of the earth. Carey was here capturing that grand end that he would never let go of until the end of his life. So after wrestling with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Carey raised the obligation of global evangelism at a minister's meeting. This is a young pastor learning things, and in his zeal decides to ask older pastors, how do you work through this text? Asking whether the Great Commission applied to all Christians, not just to the apostles, Carey was admonished by the older gentlemen. They called him a miserable enthusiast. The idea in their mind was that the task was too great. I mean, this might be a fine idea, but without another supernatural Pentecost to enable us all to speak other languages, who's going to go and learn Arabic? Or who's going to go and learn Bengali to be able to take the gospel to these other places? So in short, Carrie was told to sit down. When God pleases to convert those lost people, he'll do it without your help or mine, he was told. So despite this discouraging event, Carrie and his friends actually were encouraged. Fuller would write the gospel worthy, which handedly refuted this whole thinking of the Great Commission, and Carey continued to organize his thoughts as he wrote his own treatise to address the issue called An Inquiry. Carey would publish The Inquiry in 1792. It contained five sections aimed at refuting common objections. It surveyed the peoples of the world as he could gather at that time and provided a practical plan for reaching the world. First, he sets out to attack those arguments about the Great Commission. He argues that it's a mandate for all churches, not just the apostles. And he begins by making arguments like, if it was only just for the apostles, then baptism is only for them too. You can't take some commands and not take all commands. Second, Carey saw the world of consisting of really four main religions or people groups, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and then what he called pagans. But as Timothy George explains, these were more than mere numbers on a chart. For Carey, they represented persons, persons made in the image of God and infinitely precious to him. Third, and I think most effectively, Carey answered common objections to the idea of cross-cultural evangelism. He had many who would say, well, don't we have enough lost people here at home? Why do we have to go halfway around the world? There's plenty of lost people here. And Carey would respond, well, those at home have the means of grace. They can at any time they want go hear the word preach if they choose it. But what of those who have no Bible? 
who have no written language, who have no ministers. For them, we should call loudly for every possible exhortation to introduce the gospel among them. To those who would say it would be hard to live and survive in such places, Carey responds that such concerns should be secondary for those who are called to the ministry. He would uh, has a long treatise that I love to read in my Baptist history class, essentially encouraging people, if you're called to the ministry, you are God's servant, and you need to be willing to go where God says to go. Don't worry about the details, in a sense. Go where he says to go. Um, do what he says to do. What the next meeting of the Baptist Association, Carey preached a, ser- a sermon on Isaiah 54, calling for the transmission of the gospel overseas, essentially aiming to mobilize these churches to do something about this task. Uh, He encouraged his hearers to expect great things and attempt great things. So as a side note, lest one think that the work of church association meetings, convention sermons, denominational resolutions are a hindrance for gospel advance, and that's a fair conclusion to draw on a day when Our Southern Baptist Convention frequently seems to have one season of drama after another. I say this mostly to myself because I'm one who can grow fatigued with a lot of that drama and decide just to focus on my local church, Midwestern Seminary, and the International Mission Board and tune out everything else. If you think with me like that, just consider this based on what happened here in history. The launch of the most wide-reaching missions movement in the history of Christianity began in a small church association meeting following a sermon with a formal passing of a resolution that simply said, resolve that a plan be prepared against the next minister's meeting for the forming of a Baptist society for propagating the gospel among the heathen. Churches cooperating together and meeting together to carry out their business, however messy it is sometime, is still worth it and can still carry out things for good. Uh, I think that's a word from the past for us in the present, that the work of the Southern Baptist Convention is still needed and good, and still accomplishes far more good uh, than we sometimes remember. Following this sermon, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed, and Carey stepped forward to join the first deployment to India. Of that day, Fuller recounted, our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating a deep mine, which had never been explored, We had no one to guide us, and while we were thus deliberating, looking down this hole, metaphorically, Carrie said, as it were, well, I'll go down if you hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed, he looked to me, as Fuller said, took an oath from each one of us at the mouth of the pit, that while we live, we should never let go of the rope. And this image really portrayed what it would take for the launch of the modern missions movement, that people would be sent, yes, but churches still had to be organized at home to continue to send and support. So Harry, Carrie and his wife then leave for India. And uh, I want to summarize his time in India really with three themes to make the most of our time and also to draw out some, some highlights of his missionary service. And I'll center them around really three virtues that I think we see in Carrie's service in India. The first, we see Carrie as a plotter, a plotter. Carrie's virtue as a plotter allowed him to see God's faithfulness strengthen him when he had every reason to give up. Carrie and his family arrived in Bengal and endured immediate hardship. They had to live in a shack outside of Calcutta. The living conditions were unsanitary. They were nearly starving and suffering from dysentery. You don't want dysentery. And uh, especially if you're a female in that society, you don't want to have to deal with that, those types of things publicly. 
In addition, in 1794, the Careys lost their five-year-old son, Peter, to illness. This tragedy, this humiliation, this hardship, along with many other trials, wreaked havoc on the Careys. It, it, it harmed their marriage and especially hurt his wife. Dorothy Carey would struggle and really never recover from this period. Uh, it led to her retreating from reality. It led to many more trials until she passed away in 1807. Carey, though, persevered simply by trusting in God. He would read the scriptures. He wrote home to his sisters, I'm very fruitless and almost useless, but the word and the attributes of God are my hope, my confidence, my joy. Carey would read regularly the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. He would read Edwards' diary of David Brainerd. And he also persevered by plotting. Uh, one of his biographers recounted that they were talking later in life, and Carey said, if anyone really wants to write anything about me, first, I hope they won't. But if they do, can they just simply say that I can plod, I can persevere. That's basically what I can do. I can't do much more of that. Second, we see Carey as a pioneer. Carey's virtue as a pioneer allowed him to see God's faithfulness sustain him when he was doing things no one had done before. The first seven years brought little spiritual fruit. He wrote home to his sister in 1798, I have no news to send. At best, we can scarcely expect to be pioneers for people who might come after us. Uh, he focused on learning the languages so that he could perhaps translate the Bible into the languages and leave that as his legacy. Um, he set that as his task. That really became his evangelism strategy, that translation would lead to proclamation. And in 1797, he would see the first draft of his translation of the New Testament into Bengali, something he would revise eight more times before he died. Third, and, and finally, we see Carey as a proclaimer. Carey's virtue as a proclaimer allowed him to see God's faithfulness as sufficient to bear fruit according to God's plan. While he focused on translation, once Carey learned the language, he would regularly preach and preach in open-air markets. He would take encouragement from the fact that even though there was no response in the early years, the name of Jesus, he wrote home, is at least no longer strange in this neighborhood. I've at least come and put the good news out there. In 1799, Carey would move his family um, up the river from Calcutta to the village of Serampore and joined with two other missionaries, John Joshua Marshman and William Ward. And these three families formed a trio, and they established a base uh, for missionary activity called the Serampore Mission. And in 1800, they saw their first person come to Christ. They would establish some uh, common missionary practices that many missionaries on the field still follow today. They wrote something in 1805 called the Serampore Form Agreement, basically a list of disciplines that they had to establish for themselves to keep focused on that grand end task. Carey would also impact the culture. Time doesn't permit for us to go into all the examples, but he would regularly interact with the governing authorities to try to improve conditions for the people of India. He, he would share his understanding of science, of engineering, of medicine, of agriculture, of education, even astronomy in ways that impacted local Indian culture there for the next several decades. He aimed to be a proclaimer. So for the remainder of his ministry in India, he would remarry after Dorothy's death, and that second wife, would he would outlive her and he would remarry again. Uh, he would go on to outlive Andrew Fuller in England. He would outlive his colleague, William Ward, and would eventually die at the age of 73. When he died at, in 1834, his only request was that on his tombstone would be one of the lines from his favorite Isaac Watts hymn, simply says, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. 
Despite world-reaching legacy and fame, Carey departed in faithfulness, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of his faith. He literally kept that grand end in view from the beginning to the end. Well, in conclusion, let me just say, if you've seen any Star Wars movie, you know something about what's called making the jump to hyperspace. To travel from solar system to solar system isn't like, as they say, dusting crops. You have to have a working hyperdrive, and you also have to have the right trajectory locked into the NAVA computer. Otherwise, you'll bounce too close to a supernova and find yourself floating home. The key to surviving hyperspace in the Star Wars universe is having the right trajectory. Well, the key for Christians to live out God's directive for missions, wherever they find themselves in the world, whether here or abroad, is trajectory. In what direction we point our plans, our lives, will follow, and so will those whom we lead. So whatever we're called to do and wherever we live, we're to live, I think, as world Christians. We're to keep this grand end in view. We champion the end goal of the gospel to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in our families and our churches, or perhaps we are willing to go for a short period of time or a longer period of time to participate in taking the gospel for ourselves. We should be increasing our knowledge of the nations, not letting the events of the world cloud our inboxes, but choosing instead to focus and learn about where God is working in the world instead. Uh, for some of you, I do hope that God may be mobilizing you while you're in the school, Spurgeon College or Midwestern Seminary, to go on a short-term trip, or perhaps a longer-term trip, or perhaps even surrendering to the call to take your life to the ends of the earth full-time. But for some of you, God may be mobilizing you to pastor and serve in churches or in the marketplace here in the States. What matters most, though, is trajectory. Jesus Christ has already said that we're to make disciples of all nations. That is not up for debate. The gospel was preached before unto Abraham and included that it would include all nations. That's not up for debate. So we should assess for ourselves whether God would have us leave our comforts in our home for the sake of those who have never heard or find ways in which while we're here to mobilize our lives to help get the gospel to those who have never heard. Where is your trajectory? Are you keeping the grand end in view? The glorious promise of hope and joy here is that the believer who, like William Carey, keeps the grand end in view will therefore, like Abraham, see one day all the nations and the peoples blessed through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for our brother William Carey and his life and sacrifice. Though not perfect, he sought to live in faithfulness in his own day and his own time. And I pray you'd rise up many of us to follow in his footsteps to carry out that task in our own way, in our own day and time, and that you would help us to keep the grand end in view for your name and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.